This episode of Remnant Radio is brought to you in part by our sponsors at Kairos Classrooms. Have you ever thought about learning a biblical language as a supplemental tool in your biblical studies? Well, Kairos Classrooms offers real classroom environments with with classmates and a live instructor who can help teach you biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T, REMNANT, to get 10% off your semester. Hey guys, welcome to the wonderful world of Remnant Radio. My name is Michael Roundtree, Josh Lewis out on vacation. So I have Michael Miller joining me on the show today and we're hosting Chris Green to discuss the question of Pentecostals view of communion. Do they even have a view? Some of you are already asking that in the qu- in the chat. So uh, it's going to be an exciting show. You guys stay tuned. Well, there it is. There's my intro. You are watching The Remnant Radio, a crowd-funded show where we interview pastors, teachers, historians, and theologians from different churches and denominations. My name is Joshua Lewis, and this is my co-host, Michael Roundtree. Together, we want to help you break outside of your theological echo chambers. If you're interested in learning about history, theology, or the gifts of the Spirit, this is the show for you. Okay, guys, welcome back to the show. Super excited to talk about this subject. Uh, Here at Remnant Radio, we love the sacraments, and we talk about them all the time amongst ourselves and kind of all the time on the show. Uh, But we're uh, so excited to have Dr. Uh, Dr. Chris Green here with us. A couple things before we dive in. I uh, want you guys to know, first of all, that we're crowdfunded. And if, you're, if you've benefited from our videos, sure help us out. If you consider making a donation, either a one-time donation using PayPal or ongoing using Patreon, both of those, uh, both of those you can find in the links. And it definitely helps, you, helps us out if you subscribe or you hit that like button. If you're watching right now, go ahead and hit that like button. Uh, last of all, have you signed up for the Remnant Radio conferences. Uh, I say conferences. It's actually conference coming up September uh, September 14th. And uh, But I said conferences because the website is remnantconferences.com. We're going to talk about prophecy and hearing the voice of God. Guys, this is going to be awesome. We've not really even been talking about it because we've been advertising our, uh, our e-course, which is just soon to launch. Got a new crop coming through this fall. Super exciting. But, uh, but now we're ready to talk about it again, and even in not talking about it, it's almost full. So I expect it will surely be full here in the next couple. Well, I don't know. I don't really want to predict. I think it'll be uh, full real fast. But check out remnantconferences.com. Man, I'm excited about some of those workshops, talking about tongues, talking about interpretation, uh, talk, so much. Uh, how do we hear the voice of God? How do we grow in it? How do we launch a prophetic ministry? We'll have a pastor session. I'll leave that one. Uh, so lots of uh, really cool stuff uh, coming down. Uh, but Michael Miller joined me on the Monday show. Usually he's a Wednesday guy. But the one thing... How did I get here? Uh, Mario! <laughs> It's like a that, me, a Mario. <laughs> you even, what are you doing drinking coffee at this? I guess it's 2.30 Bro, your time. Don't you remember? I was diagnosed ADHD. Coffee has no impact on me. Okay. I can drink it any time of the day. <laughs> it just fine. Okay. Well, how are you doing over there in the basement, Michael Miller? Hey, man. I'm back in the basement where apparently I belong. <laughs> um, <no. laughs> I'm doing good, man. 
Uh, I think I told you before the show, I, <laughs> one of the most exciting things at my church, this is so silly, but we have a couple that's getting married. And uh, they had the bachelorette party this last weekend, and they cast demons out of out of a couple of girls. I just love, I love that that's what happens at a bachelorette party with people from my church that people yeah, get delivered. You, usually, what happens at bachelorette parties is people get demons, but you guys are actually right. spelling them, so actually going the yes. right, the the better way. So yeah, yeah, you got it. So uh, I just it makes me a happy pastor to hear those kind of stories. So yeah, that's yeah, I'm doing good, man. I'm excited. Okay, cool. Well, uh, Dr. Chris Green is with us on the show. Uh, Pentecostalism, communion, we're going to talk about this and all the questions that this touches on. Super excited about that. Uh, Doctor, you want us to call you Doctor? Well, I could call you Dr. Green. We usually start the show out calling people Doctor, and then it usually just devolves from there into, you know, slanderous nicknames and, and whatnot. Uh, not really. Um, okay, so, uh, but I, I know that uh, you've studied this issue of communion a lot. You come from the Pentecostal perspective, but uh, talk to us just about, I, I know you've written about this. You, uh, you also teach. Talk to us, uh, how, how can people get connected with your work on this and just your ministry? Yeah, so I think on the personal side of it, I grew up in Oklahoma, rural Oklahoma, central Oklahoma, not far from Norman in a independent holiness Pentecostal church. And we did communion once a year and it was terrifying. <laughs> I mean, we, we took incredibly seriously the, the idea that it first Corinthians, you know, Paul saying you partake unworthily. And because of this, some of you are sick and some of you have died. And as a, as a young kid, I'm, I made the, I made the calculus, right? I, I stand to gain nothing if I take it and I could die if I, if I take it and I have, you know, sin in my life, that's not been purged. And so I, it was not, it was a holy moment, but it was all threat, no promise. Hmm. It was, it's hard to even, but now that I realize how peculiar that is in the big sweep of things, of course, but it's all I knew at the time, it seemed normal. So it communion was, probably the holiest moment of the year, but it was also absolutely terrifying. There, were, there was nothing about it that was reassuring or comforting or joyous. And went off to Bible school, planning to be a pastor, Pentecostal Bible school, of course, and graduated, started a church, and I met with a mentor. And I talk about this a little bit in the Lord's Supper book that you've read, and met with a mentor for breakfast and he just said, hey, you should make communion central to your altar call every week. So I, the Pentecostalism I had known was very much an altar call Pentecostalism, right? Everything in the service works toward that final call at the end of the sermon for everyone to come up for prayer, for, to have people lay hands on them, pray over them, pray with them. And I, I'm not exactly sure why I even said yes, honestly. I, I respected him. Maybe that's a that's the simple answer. But I, I was working with, you know, a group of people in the, in the church plant. And I said, Hey, I think this is what we should do. And everybody was on board with it. And so we started doing it, not really knowing what we were doing or even exactly why, but what he had told me was if you do it, if you will make communion central to your altar call and preach to it every week, 
then you'll always have a tether to the gospel. Whatever you're talking about, you'll be able to relate it. In the end, you'll you'll be forced to relate it to the call to come to Jesus. And that, that will keep your preaching oriented to the cross and to Jesus. And that, that was persuasive for me. I mean, I it made I respected him and that made a ton of sense to me. And it did to the to the folks I was working with. And so we jumped in and we started doing it. And I never recovered from it. <laughs> like it was <laughs> like week to week, day to day really. I was I had just started reading the Church Fathers. I I'd always loved theology, but I was just finally getting into the stream of the church's deep tradition. And those two things happening at once, the experience we were having week to week in the church and my reading week, you know, Monday to Saturday. Yeah. I mean, it just, it carried me away. And you know, here I am 12, 15 years later and I'm still carried away. Right? <laughs> okay. Sooner or later, I'm going to get the timing of this camera switch. Uh, okay, well, I, I want to just kind of ask a follow-up. So you talk about being deep in church history and using communion as an altar call. Help us understand kind of, do you see this in history? I know maybe we can talk Cane Ridge revival or maybe uh, the debate between Jonathan Edwards and his grandfather Solomon Stoddard, who viewed communion as a converting ordinance. I'm, I'm curious if that's the way that you operated in communion, if it was just like, hey, come to Jesus for the first time, like get saved by receiving communion. Or so is this like a get saved altar call of communion or is it more of like uh, just encounter Jesus in whatever way, just kind of like Pentecostals typically do and just come, you know, instead of come forward and get prayer, it's just just come to the table and encounter Jesus. I'm curious what that looked like for you practically and how you see that tying in with mm. church history and some of those uh, Stoddard and Edwards and Cane Ridge and some of those other uh, events that I mentioned. Great question. And I, I would say that my, my views, I don't think I've really departed from anything I wrote in that book, but I think my views have deepened and widened a bit. So I might say it a bit differently now than I would have said it then, but let me, let me describe what we were doing and kind of how that played out over, over the first few years of that practice. We didn't really know. I mean, most of us were Pentecostal folks who had been raised in churches in which communion was, was anything but sacramental. It was, it, my experience had had a sense of holiness, but again, it was threat without promise. Most of the people I was worshiping with, it was neither threatening nor promising. It was just, it was ritual in the worst possible sense. And random or maybe as much as monthly in some of our churches, but it was just wasn't meaningful for most people. So when we started doing it, it was really just a, this is a way of rem reminding ourselves that everything we're doing is rooted in the story of Jesus who died. So I would say, even though I didn't have the language at the time, what we were doing was, was a memorialist. Like we were remembering Jesus death, bringing it to mind. But I was also, again, and others who were working with me, we were reading theology. So that very quickly started to change into what you're describing, which is, this is an encounter with Jesus. We don't, you know, and, and we would start, we started using the language of mystery. 
we don't know exactly how it's happening or why it's happening. For me, a lot of it turned in a reading of Luke 24, this, and I remember this sermon that I preached, and at least in my mind, I mean, who knows what everybody else in the church would have said at the time. But for me, that was a kind of turning point from mm-hmm. this is a kind of object lesson that keeps us from forgetting what Jesus did to this is a mystery in which that Jesus is present mm-hmm. to us, right? That shift happened for me in that sermon about Luke 24, the Emmaus Road disciples and their eyes being opened in the breaking of bread. And what shifted for me was this sense in which Jesus himself had taught them the scriptures, but they still didn't recognize him. It was the breaking of bread, him breaking the bread for them that opened their eyes. Mm-hmm. And that's what it did for me. It, it opened my eyes to a mystery that had been right in front of me all along that we were already practicing every week without realizing what it was doing to us. Right now, the way I would describe it where I am now looking back is that I think the Lord was showing up and acting in those meals when we didn't know what was happening. Mm-hmm. And so it led us to, I mean, I think he did for us exactly what he did for the Emmaus disciples. He showed up and broke the bread and it, it changed everything for us. Then I was also at that time working on the PhD, right? Which would become the book. And I was teaching at Oral Roberts university. So I'm pastoring, I'm teaching full time and I'm working on the PhD. So, I mean, my every waking hour is reading about this stuff and talking with people about it. I was able to make a trip one of those summers to Ukraine and spent the summer teaching Ukrainian Pentecostals who have a deep sacramental theology that had a a major impact on me as well. Hmm. And at least the Pentecostals I was around. I mean, I'm not, I can't speak for everybody, obviously, but the, the folks I was working with that summer had a very, had a deep sacramentality. And so between the readings and the experiences and what was happening in our community week to week, I, I very quickly started to recognize there's more here in our tradition than I had thought. Right. And it runs back to Wesley and back through Wesley into the whole tradition. So I would say what was happening at our church on Sunday, I don't mean to, I don't think there's a straight line from that back to what Wesley was doing, or even back to what the Wesleyans were doing at Cane Ridge or wherever else. But I do think the sense of an altar call of some, of some sort and a communion service, I think that's absolutely ancient. I think that's what we see in the Didache, what's being described when we, when we gather for the breaking of bread. And there's, of course, a Eucharistic prayer there. But there's a word about if the prophets are present, you don't have to follow this liturgy. Right? If, a, if a prophet is not present, then follow this. But if a prophet is present, you're, you're not required to. And that's one of the most ancient texts in the tradition, which tells you that the charismatic, the prophetic, and the Eucharistic were aligned at that point. And then, of course, I'm seeing that everywhere in Scripture, too, as I'm studying and preaching week to week. And that's what you see in the Church Fathers, you know, Ignatius talking about the, the his teaching about the bishop. He says this was spoken as a word at the Eucharist. And the way that at least now different scholars read it differently, but the way that I read it is that's a prophetic word. Like mm-hmm. he was at communion and the spirit spoke prophetically. And so I, I very quickly started to see in history, to see in Pentecostal history, to see in scripture and to see in our community 
that the Eucharist as the center of the altar experience was the place where the sacramental and the charismatic were one same spirit resting mm-hmm. on the same and the same body gathered around him. And so yeah, sort of like a supernatural element that you're drawing on from the Didache where you're seeing these gifts of the spirit manifestations of the spirit being present alongside a manifestation of God's presence in communion. Uh, so both of those things would be kind of parallel experiences, uh, one or the other in a service, at least as it's described in the liturgy of the Didache. Is that correct? That's right. And again, at the time, I wouldn't have been able to name all of that, right? It was more a intuition. My language was, was running to try to catch up to our experience. What I would say now is what Bonhoeffer says in his Christology lectures, which is in preaching in the sacrament, Christ is present and he's speaking and acting. And of course, the Christ who's present is the charismatic Christ of the Gospels. He's the Christ upon whom the spirit rests. Mm-hmm. So we should expect, I mean, it shouldn't surprise us. So I, now I wouldn't say they're parallel acts. They're the acts of Jesus. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, Jesus is present and he's doing what he does when he's present. And so I, I now wouldn't see them, you know, as two things happening at the same time, but the one person, Jesus present acting in all the ways that he acts. Okay. Okay. Well, I want, I want to come back to, uh, that I had mentioned Jonathan Edwards versus Solomon Stoddard. And a lot of people wouldn't be familiar with the debate that they had about communion, but it was a huge debate at the time. And it touches on open table versus closed table. And, and even what you're talking about with altar call, which is why it made me think of this Mm -hmm. question. Uh, But for some of our viewers, they're not even aware of any of that. So could you explain the controversy and maybe where you would fall uh, in that uh, in that controversy, who would you have sided with, Jonathan Edwards or his grandpa? Yeah, so there's there's actually controversy about the controversy. Like there, scholars. Don't even <laughs> I agree. didn't know that. Yeah, scholars don't even quite agree on what is meant. So John Wesley, of course, insists that the Eucharist is a converting sacrament. But what is meant by that, and probably what Stoddard means by that, is not that that's the way in which people become Christians in the sense that they go from being unbaptized, unregenerate to regenerate people, sons and daughters of God Hmm. through this meal. That's probably not what we know. That's not what Wesley meant. It's probably not what Stoddard meant. What they probably mean and Wesley certainly means is it's people who were baptized as infants who've never kind of activated their faith, right? They've never moved into a living Christianity. So they're in a sense, Christian in name only, right? They've, they've been baptized. They belong to the church. They're nominally Christian or even in a, in a shallow superficial sense, they're ritualistically Christian, but they're not yet ignited with the fire of God and the Eucharist can ignite that. And this is one of the reasons Wesley loves Ephraim, the Syrian's poem about the, the fire and blood of the spirit in the cup that there's fire in the blood and the fire in the blood is the fire of the spirit that ignites our passion for God. So when Wesley's talking about converting, and again, I think this is almost certainly what Stoddard means too, is Christians who've been baptized coming to the table and having their love for God just erupt, right? Ignite, enkindle. And so the controversy is, 
However, whether or not that's appropriate, right? like whether whether or not you can do that across kind of um, lines of theological difference, now Wesley is practicing what we would now call an open table, right? If you're if you're baptized, you're welcome at this table, right? Mm-hmm. Now, another problem here is. When we say open, do we mean open to all baptized believers, irrespective of their Christian tradition? Or do we mean open to anybody, baptized or unbaptized, Christian or non-Christian, whatever? And I think that's a that's a harder question to ask. I will say that just in terms of what we did week to week, we never thought about that. For I mean, for the first few years, that was never... I mean, that wouldn't have occurred to us at all. The table was open. If, they were, if there was someone at our church... And they wanted to come and partake. They were partaking. Like we weren't, we were in no way fencing the table, right? We were not, we were not using Eucharist as a prize for those who had been faithful, right? If you've been faithful this week, you can come and receive communion. We were treating it much as I think the fellowship meals in the gospel of Luke portray Jesus acting, right? He's eating with whomsoever, right? Uh, And, that was our our approach, which again I stand by. I would I still practice that, although now I have a much better sense of kind of what's at stake in those debates and why there even is controversy around it. But yeah, at the time I would say we were practicing it as a converting sacrament, even in ways that Wesley and Stoddard probably did not mean it. Mm-hmm. We we would have said and did say, you know, if you've never met Jesus and you want to you know, here's a chance, right? So we very much were practicing the widest openness and, <laughs> and, and an openness to every possible kind of conversion, right? But, and, and I still would, I still would, but I have a much better sense now, I would say, historically and theologically about why that is, in fact, so controversial. So make, make a case for me then. Um, at my church, we say, we center our service around the communion table. It's at the very center of our liturgy. And then in that, we also will say to people, um, if you're a believer in Christ, you trusted him as, as your savior, then you're welcome at the table with us. If that's not a decision that you've made and you're still, we, you know, still trying to figure that out, we, we'd ask that you just observe and maybe spend this time asking the Lord about, you know, is he real? Is he there for you? Did he really die on the cross for your sins? And so it's a, an open-ish in the sense that we let people make that decision for themselves, but we give yeah. them some guidance in that. Yeah. Um, but you would say you would invite anybody present to come and partake. Is that correct? Yeah. So I, again, I really, I, I think there's a reason this is controversial. I understand much better than I would have 10 years ago, why, you know, a church would make the call you're making. And I, what I honestly, my answer would be when I'm presiding at the table, when I'm leading a service, I will refer to the meal as the church's meal, and if you're baptized, and if you know the Lord, and if you want to know the Lord, right, you can come forward. And what I have kind of been open to up to this point is, if that's an entry point, we will handle it after the fact. Like if people come forward and then come, you know, come to one of our prayer partners or come to to some of us who are leading and say, hey, you know, I've actually never been baptized, or I've actually never been a Christian. Like, I want, if they come to the communion first, I'm not going to be scandalized by that, right? I mean, it's not, 
I think we're in a missional moment, at least the places that I've operated. Like it, it is, um, I want to err on the side of being open to that. It doesn't happen much, honestly. I mean, because almost everybody who shows up in our churches, they have some sense already of having been a Christian in one way or another. So it's actually not that common in my experience for people to have come to the table and then later tell us, you know, I've never been to church or I've never been baptized or I've never, never given my heart to Jesus. That's a pretty, you know, it's pretty, happens pretty infrequently, but I would, if someone were to do that, of course, my immediate move is, well, let's, let's get you baptized, right? Let's, Mm -hmm. let's get you integrated into the body. So I, I don't, I, I don't want to be vague about it. I just think that the dynamics, the missional dynamics are such that I, I want to be open to the possibility that occasionally things are going to happen out of order. And, and here's where I, you know, my Pentecostalism is going to show up. So I'm deeply shaped by Pentecostal readings of the book of Acts and the book of Acts, of course, is filled with all of these communities who are kind of out of rhythm with the order of things, right? People who've been baptized in the name of John the Baptist, people who've been baptized in water, but not filled with the spirit. Like you've got all of these people who's kind of their movement toward God is overlapping. You've got Gentiles and God fearers and Jews and some people upon the, whom the, the, the apostles have laid hands and others they've not, you know, the, the famous passage, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? We've not even heard right, about whether or not there's a Holy Spirit. And I think we're in one of those kind of pre-Christian moments again, even though we're, mm-hmm. we often think of America as a Christian nation. But what, it, you know, whether you agree with that historically or not, the fact is most of the people we're encountering have been weakly Christianized and we're, I, I think this is really more of a pre-Christian moment for most people. And so if we have some people who are kind of getting in, in the wrong order, we can sort that out. And that's how I've, how I've uh, continued to approach it. Yeah. And I know you, you talked too about it and you kind of made reference to this about just how they all received meals with, or they broke bread with gladness or, and mm-hmm. sincere hearts and, there seemed to be, uh, in your estimation, an open approach throughout Acts and that the First Corinthians 11, where it's like examine yourselves and all of that, was very contextual to people, uh, you know, to discrimination taking place in communion and uh, yes. abuse and all kinds of that that shouldn't necessarily be applied in the yeah. in, in such a way that every time we come to the table, we're just terrified to death, literally that we're yes. going to die um, because probably no one's drinking all the wine and getting smash faced at the Lord's Supper at your church. Um, Before I, that hasn't happened. That now, only happens at Bridge I mean, I like sincerely hope that's not happening. But <laughs> I have so many questions that I want to keep going down that uh, that rabbit hole. But I want to stay focused on like the real on the topic of the show that yet that touches on it. But like I want to dive deeper into the Pentecostal. Uh, that that sort of uh, strand of thought. So uh, 
specifically, I know in your book, you walk through the history of Pentecostalism. You've mm-hmm. talked a little bit about the, uh, about John Wesley, who was deeply sacramental. Uh, but I'd love for you to just kind of review, because I know you also talk about just like the deep mysticism of the early Pentecostals and that the early Pentecostals were very sacramental, or at least some of them. And so maybe kind of, because as many people who are watching this or listening to it as they're driving around, they're, they're thinking, man, I don't know any Pentecostal sacramentalists. I mean, th- these are like two different worlds. I know some Anglicans, I know some Methodists, but, but I don't know anybody who's truly Pentecostal that's sacramental also. So take us into the history Help us see what you uncovered in your uh, dissertation research. Yeah, it 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 blew my mind. It really did I, because I went in expecting to find what I'm doing. Just methodologically, what I was doing is reading the periodical literature from the early first two decades of the Pentecostal movement in North America and in Great Britain. So it's you know basically 1901 to 1921. And these various ministries, denominations, churches would publish periodicals, like newsletters that could be anywhere from two to 24 pages long and could be published once a week or once a month or randomly. And they, many of them had really wide circulation. Some of them had tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of subscribers around the world. Some of them, of course, are much smaller, but there's was a way in which the the Pentecostal movement was in fact a, a, a movement. It was coalescing into a movement rather than just random revivals. And I, I will say this for the scholars who've engaged this, there is some debate about how best to get a read on what that period was like. And some people think that studying the peri- periodicals can be misleading because it's not grassroots enough, right? It's an edited like someone is managing that message, right? You have an editor or a team of editors who are wanting to get a message out. So I just want to put that caveat in there in that I'm not trying to say I've uncovered the full truth of the first 20 years of the Pentecostal movement. I don't think anyone can do that. And I certainly didn't do that. What I did do is read just endless, endless, endless numbers of periodicals looking from 1901 to 1921 across the denominations, Assemblies of God, Church of God, Church of God in Christ, Pentecostal Holiness, independent movements, and individual churches like the Stone Church in Chicago, Sunderland Church, which is an Anglican church, where Smith Wigglesworth Ministry comes forth, like various churches and ministries and denominations. And I'm reading each one of those periodicals very closely, looking for what they say about water baptism, what they say about communion, what they say about the laying on of hands with the anointing of the oil and what they say about foot washing. And I'm looking at three levels. So I'm looking for what do they say explicitly about their beliefs about those things. So when they say we believe X about water baptism or we believe X about the Lord's Supper, I'm recording that. I'm also looking for testimonies when they testify or, or record testimonies about those services, you know, so on such and such day, 50 people were baptized and this happened and we sang that song, right? That, those kinds of things. And then I also looked through that same material. And this, of course, is years of work looking through that same material at ways in which they use sacramental metaphors. So when they talked about feasting on God or drinking of the spirit, and usually these are 
you know, lines drawn from the scripture, like the two I just gave, but not always. And, and you, you talk about being, of course, baptized in the spirit is a sacramental metaphor already. And this is, of course, as you expect, everywhere. At the time, going in, I thought I wouldn't find much at the first level at all. I thought I would find more testimony. And I thought probably the metaphors will be there because that's Christian tradition and it's the language of scripture. So I kind of went in expecting that. Not much at the top, some testimony, and a whole lot at the bottom. In fact, what I found was an incredible amount of explicit teaching about sacraments. And hmm. not from random, you know, unnamed folks, but from leading figures in the movement. And over and over and over again, various leaders would say some version of, we are not memorialists. We do not believe that this supper is a remembering of Christ. He is present. So, I, I mean, I, the book is filled with examples, but one of my favorite examples comes from D.W. Kerr, who was a theologian, early Assemblies of God movement at the Hot Springs meeting, which launches the Assemblies of God. He presides and preaches at the communion service that closes the meeting. And he says in that, in that sermon, talking about the table, this is the present tense of Calvary, that there is a pastness to this meal and a futureness to this meal. And he quotes 1 Corinthians, you know, we are anticipating his coming. We're remembering his death until he comes. He says, but most of all, there is a presentness to this meal. This is the present tense of Calvary. The blood flows fresh from his wounds to this table. And that is everywhere in that early literature. Again, explicit statements, not just testimonies about the Lord did this or so and so. I mean, lots of stories about people having visions of Jesus breaking the bread or sharing it or seeing angels. I mean, lots of testimonies. But there was much more explicit statement, explicitly sacramental statements than I expected. Uh, and because I didn't expect much at all. And it, it staggered me. And, and what I realized through it all through all of that study, is that so many of these Pentecostals in those first two decades are Methodists. They're still Wesleyan, and they're therefore shaped by Anglican sacramentality that's now been ignited by their experience of the Spirit. Hmm. And they're finding at the table, not only at the table, also in foot washing, also in laying on of hands, for anoint, I mean, for ordination as well as for healing, and in water baptism, they're finding that Jesus is present and acting. And they have enough theological wherewithal. There's another caricature, right? That early Pentecostals are all kind of backwoods, uneducated, anti-intellectual preacher types. But I mean, that's wildly untrue. I mean, many of those early Pentecostal leaders had been trained, some of, some of them seminary trained in other traditions, and then they have an experience of the spirit. So the I mentioned the, the vicarage where Smith Wigglesworth was in Sunderland, his priest, is presiding at the Eucharist and starts speaking in tongues while he's presiding. And that becomes the this kind of launching point for the revival there in hmm. in Sunderland. In Agnes Osmond, who's who for a long time was regarded as the first woman to speak in tongues. So you'll see in these early periodicals, she's making the rounds traveling the world, writing and teaching and preaching about her experience. So she's at Charles Parham's Charles Parham's Bible School in Topeka, Kansas, 1901, watch night service. They're doing communion. That's when she speaks in tongues hmm. while communion. And 
so these kind of stories had been lost to us and wow. we we've not as pentecostals and here i'm talking about classical pentecostals so the the pentecostals that emerged from that azusa street revival and are shaped by it directly we're terrible at knowing our own history we not only ignore the church's history we ignore our own history and in the process we lost we lost touch with with who we are one more thing before we go to the next question so I, i'm in the middle of all that and i read walter hollenweger's book on pentecostalism and he was the first person to do a phd study of the global pentecostal movement and took him years to do he had to learn lots of languages so he could read these pentecostals in their native tongues which is ironic right given pentecostal speaking tongues but he says in there talking about those same 20 years that i'm talking about that pentecostalism and now he's talking globally not just about the anglophone pentecostalism i i study globally pentecostalism from that period is a blood and wound mysticism a blood and wound mysticism that is centered in the experience of jesus the friend jesus who suffers with us at the table hmm. and that i mean i realized as i was reading that line that's what i'm finding that's what i'm that's not what i grew up with because it had changed by the time I was a kid, but that's what was true. And so, you know, hmm. we can probably, yeah, yeah, that's enough, enough of a beginning of an answer, right? Um, so this is probably more in the present day. I'm thinking of of well, I'd say in the last sixty years, in the 1960s, uh, we saw a a wave of the spirit that sort of hit many of the liturgical churches, Episcopalian, yeah, uh, Catholic. Yeah. I think the, the charismatic Catholic fraternity was established under John Paul II, I believe. And then, um, and, and with that also soon after came uh, a charismatic revival or a, another outpouring of the spirit with the evangelical churches in the 1970s and 80s. And then after that, there was a major shift uh, from um or I guess what's called the convergence movement that happened with many of these evangelical charismatics that started studying church history, became Anglican, um, yes. and started really like uh, re revaluing the sacraments and church history, uh, the creeds. And then um, in present day, you're seeing this in probably the more charismatic movement with guys like Lou Engel, where there's been a uh, talk again of communion as a sacrament and not just as a ritual. And then you've also got uh, Todd Smith that's sort of experiencing uh, a baptism revival in, in Georgia. Um, mm -hmm. Both these guys are charismatics. What do you think is happening? Like what is God doing uh, with sacramentalism, uh, especially in the charismatic Pentecostal church today? Yeah. I mean, I know we don't know each other really well, but I'll just be blunt. I mean, I think God is saving us from parachurch ministry. Hmm. I think one of the things that happened, and there's a good reason for it, and of course it would take hours to unpack this with the appropriate kind of nuance. But I think one of the things that happened to free church Protestantism, especially in America, but not only in America, is that we became, you know, Stanley Hauerwas has written some about this, right? In which we became yeah, read him. a tent spirituality that became less and less and less about the church and more and more and more about parachurch ministries. I, I think, and again, just to put it out there for the sake of discernment and conversation, I think it's telling that when you think about 
independent Pentecostal charismatic ministries, most of them are larger than local churches. They, and they're not committed to local church life. They're, they're happening in, and of course, some of this is a, 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 a restaging, pun intended, of the Billy Graham model of getting people converted, right? So part of this is being American and doing things on the largest scale possible. And so we, we kind of try to get people saved in these parachurch crusades. And now we're trying to, not now, but for, for years, we've tried to get people deeper into the life of the spirit in conferences and in crusade like events, you know, at stadiums and so on. And I don't think the Holy spirit is pleased with that. And I think part of what happens is we have to be brought back to the life of the church that, that Christ is building his church, not parachurch ministries and the sacraments, the way of the way of life, the rule of life that we're called to live, the, the creeds, I mean, I'm ordained, I'm a bishop in that convergence movement that you just talked about for this very reason. And what I, I would describe my life as a, a way of repenting, finding my way back to the life of the church that Christ is building. And with all the good that happens in those parachurch settings and all the good that happens in those mission, those missions, I think Christ is building his church. And I, what I think is happening in Lou Engle or Todd Smith or any of those movements is the spirit is guiding them as the spirit guided me. Again, this is my sense of it back to this is what it means to be the people of God. It looks like the church gathered for these, these words, these prayers, these confessions, the sharing of this meal, and that that's the heart of it. That's what the spirit is trying to do. And because that's where Christ is glorified and the gospel is made known. And I, I see it as a nudge of the spirit back to faithfulness, a, a call to repentance and regaining the vision of the church being the church. Hmm. Okay. So I, I want to talk to you about just, you know, we titled the episode, a Pentecostal view of communion. We've talked a lot about communion. We've talked a lot about Pentecostalism uh, as well as how those have merged. But I, I want to specifically ask you this. Would you consider yourself a Pentecostal who happens to also be a sacramentalist? Or would you say that your Pentecostalism creates a distinction to your sacramentalism, if that makes sense? Does the intersection of the two, like what is it that distinguishes your strand of sacramentalism like does the question make sense like i'm just curious how pentecostalism colors your experience of sacramentalism and understanding of it theologically yeah i think it does and i'll answer it in two ways and then you can redirect me if, if neither one of them addresses what you're actually asking i think theologically the separation of the sacramental and the and the charismatic like the the openness to the spirit, to the miraculous, to the prophetic, to, to all the gifts of the spirit and trusting that the Lord is present in the way that he promised to be. I mean, a sacrament, we didn't define this early on in the conversation, but for me, when I say sacrament, I'm talking about a sign instituted by the Lord by command that does what it signifies. So it's a sign Jesus told us to, to do that gets done what Jesus promised it would do. Right? So, washing in water washes away sins and taking the bread and the wine 
we feast on Jesus, just as he promised, laying on of hands, we share the gift of the spirit. So, I mean, I think that's when I, that's what I'm talking about when I talk about sacramental. I don't think there's any way to separate, genuinely separate the sacramental from the charismatic. Because Jesus is the one who's acting, and he is this grace. That, that is who he is. That's what he does. I think our categories falsely separate them. And as long as we're tr- working with those categories, they're going to seem to be at odds. But they're, they're not really, because they're integrated in Jesus. That means, so in that sense, I think the question is a sign of how broken our churches actually are. This is where the dividedness of the church is you know a sin to be grieved a brokenness to be grieved because i don't think those things should have ever have been in any way at odds it's tragic that they are mm-hmm. that being said i think that there's a way in which sociologically the pentecostalism i grew up with is, is a very distinctive expression of christianity you know it's preaching has a certain sound you know i, I grew up in what i call sweaty pentecostalism right? <laughs> a lot of a lot of <laughs> spirituality is is sweet and happy. I grew up in you look like you had been in a bar fight when you went to church. Right? Like it was <laughs> unbelievably intense. And I'm not kidding. I'm not at all kidding, right? We went to church multiple times a week for hours every time and anything could happen, right? Anything could happen. And that I carry with me still. So I'm 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 a bishop, right? I mean you see me in my mitre and see me in my chasuble. And I'll be speaking in tongues and preaching like an old school Pentecostal because that's what shaped me. Those are the people that taught me the faith, right? But I think that's sociological, not ontological, right? Mm-hmm. That that just happens to be the language I speak. But I don't think that's, a, you know, in any way changing the fact that where Jesus is present, he's the miracle-working, prophetic, spirit-endowed, spirit-giving Lord in the flesh. And I think that's true no matter where you are, no matter when you are. Yeah. Okay. So uh, tell us what it means when you say communion is a means of grace, and then also perhaps build a case for a weekly communion, or maybe even more than that. You know, when you read uh, about the early church, they would they would meet daily. Uh, breaking bread. Yeah, breaking bread. Yeah. So I first... To, let me answer that last question first, right? I, I think Wesley is right about this. So two sermons, if, if people haven't read these, like read Wesley on the duty of constant communion and yeah, Wesley's sermon. Go ahead. Oh, I just said, that's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. go ahead. That, that, I mean, I'm, I'm fully on board with him there. I mean, I think we want to commune with Jesus as often as we can. And, you know, for me, that's more than once a week. But I don't, again, I don't want to be legalistic about it. And I don't think there's anything superstitious about it. So don't mishear me here. I don't think that there's a way in which there somehow some kind of magical effect is brought about by doing it more. You don't like, you know, store, store up grace by doing it more often, but giving yourself to Jesus as he directed you to do is going to matter for you, right? So you're not you're not like scoring points, but the more you dwell with him, the more it's going to matter. And that's what I I'm I've learned Eucharist is, right? This is this is a cry of mercy. And it's a cry of mercy for me as I'm partaking, and it's a cry of mercy for the whole world. 
It's a cry of mercy for everyone Christ loves. And I don't think we can do that too often. And I do think it's important. And of course, the whole Christian tradition agrees with me here, or I agree with it, that we need to come with our hearts set and open. We need to come in faith. But Jesus is acting in that, and we should be present to him as much as we can. Now, so that's, we should do that as often as we can, right? When, when we do it, I, th- I think it's important that we learn a way to do it well. So I, I here I'm very ecumenical. I, I don't have any interest in, you know, playing up, you know, the, the Anglican aspects of my training over against someone else's tradition. I don't, I don't think at the end of the day, there's like, I'm not an Orthodox or a Roman Catholic. I don't think that there is a, a case to be made. This is the one true church and we should all convert to it. I think, however, wherever you happen to be planted, wherever God happens to have set you down, you should do your best to honor that tradition's way of coming to the table and baptizing, anointing with for the sick and ordination and so on. Do the best you can to honor the the way in which the spirit has taught these truths to your tradition. And what I think happens, what I'm, what I'm committed to, and here I'm deeply affected by Robert Jensen's theology, Lutheran theologian, that if we will do that, it will draw us all, all of us from various tradition, Catholic, Lutheran, Anglican, Pentecostal, Baptist, whatever it is, we'll all be drawn to a humility of spirit and an openness to Jesus that will change our conversations across our differences. And that's, that, that would be the advice I would give for what it's worth. That's where I would start. Okay. Hey, I want to <laughs> slightly off topic, but baptism, you touched on this when you were defining a sacrament as, uh, as something that does the thing that it signifies. And so communion, feasting on Jesus. And, and then you said baptism, washing away sins. And I can imagine uh, some of our viewers are thinking, whoa, whoa, whoa. So are you saying you believe in regenerative baptism? Does baptism save you in the sense that at the moment you get wet, you're justified? Or in technicality, is one justified at the moment that they believe? I, I'm plunging into this because it, it kind of, I mean, it relates great. It, even on the communion issue, it relates greatly as to one's understanding of the sacraments and what we would call, of course, soteriology, salvation. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so help us understand just kind of when you say we wash away our sins, what do you mean by that? Yeah, good. Thanks. Thanks for that question. And I probably should have said this earlier. Like I want to, I'm trying to thread a needle here, not just in this conversation, like in my life, it, between so Karl Rahner, who's a Roman Jesuit, Roman Catholic theologian, also someone who's influenced me a lot. At the end of his life, he has this prayer, a series of prayers, and he makes this distinction between being a person of the church and being churchy, or or between being a a priest and being clericalist about it. So he thinks clericalism is a is a deadly sin. And it's actually clericalism that destroys the work of the priesthood. And he thinks that being churchy or being caught up in a kind of false belief in the church as an organization or as an institution 
actually undermines the life of living in the church. Right? So I, I very much want to be a person of the church who isn't churchy <laughs> and uh, who isn't an ecclesiarch in that sense, right? Who isn't fundamentalist or legalistic about sacramental theology and ecclesial order and so on. And that's what I'm striving to live, right? So that being said, to come to you, to your question, I think we, I do believe that what's happening in baptism is what's promised. And I think it's what happened to Israel when they went through the sea. And I think it's what happened to those people that went under John's hand in baptism. I think that's what happened in the book of Acts when people were baptized in following the word of Peter or Paul or any of the others. It's what happened to the Ethiopian eunuch. I think that baptism is doing that. I think our mistake is we're trying to simplify down the work of God to that event, right? So I think, again, we've got a category problem. We, and this, I'm not, not trying to shoot strays at Billy Graham or anything, but I think one of the things that happened in Protestantism in America is that we confused the moment of decision, like a particular moment in, in a person's life, with everything the scripture promises about salvation. And we tried to locate on a timeline in a person's life where God does that. So all this stuff that's promised, where, what point on, what dot on this line does that happen? And I, I don't think that's how God works, right? So a, a few things to say about that. One, it's a mistake to think of God working in time like one factor among others. God's work happens in time and on time. So we don't say, for instance, John Bear, whom I love, he, he makes this point. We don't say that Jesus is, when, when we talk about today, Christ is here today, today, let us hear his voice, right? Respond to him today. Today is the day of salvation. Christ is born today. Christ is crucified today. Christ is risen today. That's what we say liturgically, right? That's what we're, we're taught to say. Not that Christ is somehow now 2,023 years old or whatever, and he was born, you know, all of those years ago. You can't think of, that's not how Christ's presence works. He's the eternal one who's taken on flesh. So he doesn't age in that way. His work is always fresh. It's always new. It's always happening now. And so I would say baptism is not the moment. Like when you go in the water, of course, not everything that's promised to you in salvation has played out in your life. You don't come up out of the water as a perfected Christian. You don't come up out of the water having had all of Christ worked in you. Your conversion has not been completed, but you have been marked as one who is on that path of conversion. You, you have set, been set aside, I mean, whether you're baptizing infants as we do, or an adult who's entering into that water freely, so to speak, then we're, we're marking or being marked, marking ourselves or being marked as people who are on that path of conversion that isn't complete until the end of all things. Now is your salvation nearer than when you believed. Your salvation is kept in heaven for you. Those that endure to the end shall be saved. So again, this would take hours of conversation to unpack appropriately. But the main reason that question sticks with us, or has, we have a hard time making sense of it, is that our categories are wrong. And we're trying to fit scripture and Christian belief and Christian experience up into categories that are mistaken. And we got to get rid of those categories and, and read scripture with fresh eyes and, and hear the tradition with, with, with kind of clear hearing. 
if we're going to understand what's being promised in baptism. Okay. I remember uh, John Wimber's book. He wrote a book called PowerPoints, where he gives the analogy that the Christian life is like a, a, a rock climbing, specifically lead climbing, where you kind of, you know, you you anchor into different parts of the wall as you climb up. And in in our Christian walk, we have a number of varying experiences that that mark us. One of them being salvation, you know, the the day we believe in Jesus. But then other various experiences, and I can I can look back on my own life, and I, I've seen these transitionary periods that I've had that have marked me and changed me, and made me more like Christ in each occasion. Yeah. And I think that's kind of similar to what you're saying about it's not just this one point in time, but it's 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 a a walk where we're continually being saved. Um, yeah, and you said I, that you. Can I, you that? I think this is yeah, this yeah. is a really important point. Yeah, sorry to cut you off. I think no, no, it's fine. One is what we call salvation moment, like the moment you believe. Scripture right. never talks about it that way. So like Paul will say, just, just to give one example, and there really are dozens, but Paul says, now is your salvation nearer than when you believed. So when you believe is not your salvation, right? Salvation is what is happening to all things. It's begun in me, but the moment I believe or confess, right, Salvation comes to me, it begins in me, but it's not complete. So our language there is misleading us because we've, we've gotten a habit of speaking of that moment as a conversion, as a, a regeneration. And then we're trying to fit all the promises of Scripture into that moment. And that's, that's the category I'm trying to say we can't work with. I do think that there are personal experiences with Jesus, kind of Ebenezer moments, that we look back over and say, okay, that moment with the Lord, like that was decisive. What sets baptism apart is that it's a churchly event. So I think that I could have a moment, and John Wesley's story, again, is helpful here. He's got his Aldersgate experience. That's an mm -hmm. Ebenezer moment for him, although it didn't go like we think it went. That's a story for another day. But he's, he's got that Ebenezer moment. But that's not in competition with his baptism. And that's not in competition with those moments in his life in which the spirit burst forth in him, right? Like these things all fit together. They're, they're not at odds with each other. We don't have to figure out which one of them really counts. It's all the work of Jesus, right? And so I, I think that all of this holds together in him and we're trying to separate them and decide which is real or which has priority. And those are category mistakes. That, that actually get in the way, that actually inhibit our growth and, and our commonality. Like it, it causes division where there doesn't need to be division. Yeah. Yeah. I've all, uh, my kind of understanding on that is I see faith, repentance, and baptism as being the three acts, if you will, that mark the conversion story. Mm -hmm. And that in the book of Acts, for instance, they they all kind of function together, and I like Gavin Ortland's articulation of this. He uses the language of metonymy, so that if the scripture says baptism saves you, it's really any one of those words can be a a reference to the entire conversion process. I agree. I and think so. Right. I I just think that there's like it would be as though he said conversion saves you, and uh, but that it all it, they all go together, and uh, and in some right. ways can be used interchangeably. That's kind of my understanding it because because the, there are some difficult texts that go one way or another, but I, I mean I would say like in technicality I'm justified at the moment that I believe, but if I'm an unbaptized Christian, like we've kind of in the West gone in this habit of like spacing out weeks, months, or or put months, years, decades 
between yeah. the moment that we like made a decision and get baptized, that was alien to the New Testament. For for them, it was just like it was very close together. Um, but I don't I don't want to get too derailed here because. I know that you're on a time constraint, Chris, and I want to honor that. So I'm just going to ask one more question. I'll ask uh, Michael Miller first and then you. And, and that's really, it's just a summary question. What would be your, your takeaway, your nutshell, your, uh, just the golden nugget that you want to leave people with that just kind of summarizes uh, what we've talked about and just the one take, takeaway? Miller, I'll start with you. Yeah, I, I love hearing the journey that you've been on. And I think in... in for both Roundtree and I, we've been on a similar journey, you know, first being evangelical cessationist, then becoming uh, evangelical continuationist, and then becoming evangelical continuationist who are a bit more liturgical in practice and take weekly yeah. communion and include uh, not just grape juice, but actual wine. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what I found is uh, one of the things that I'm, I would love our audience to see is that there's a whole lot that is lost when we, we, um, are only looking at our current church experience and don't look into the history of the church. Um, there's a lot of beauty and, and honestly, a lot of fear that we could be saved by doing so. And I, your story, I think, is very um, exemplifying of that fact, having been terrified to take communion, just fear of sin and dying because of First sure. Corinthians, uh, and then embracing it and seeing beauty in it and wanting it to be more normative in your life. So, yeah. Absolutely. That's, that's amen to all that. Two things I'll say, like one is put yourself in the room with people who have experienced the sacraments deeply, who love the sacraments and also love Jesus in a way that you can recognize, befriend those people and and vice versa. I mean, I would say this and do say this to those who are in sacramental traditions who don't know Pentecostals or don't know evangelicals. Like we have to be together. We have to we have to be around one another and get past kind of superficial differences and recognize how the spirit has been faithful to all of us. And I don't say that naively or I understand there are real differences that really matter. So I'm not being I'm not hand waving those differences, but I trust Jesus and I trust the spirit's wisdom. So let's have those conversations and let's be present to each other and and lean into help say it like this, I think. Ask them to explain to you how Jesus is working and what they're experiencing. And listen for that. Listen for the testimony. Right, That's the first thing. The second thing is whatever church you happen to be shaped in. So back to my point about parachurch ministry. Whatever local church, whatever local church tradition has shaped you, try to work back from what you know now all the way back to the New Testament historically. So that you can tell a story about what it is that we believe and where it came from, historically speaking. And if you do that, what you're going to see is how Jesus has been faithful to you through all of these people and how it, it is one body. So I would challenge everybody, whatever your faith tradition is right now, whatever they're doing with baptism or Eucharist or any of it, or miracles and prophecy, etc., start tracing the history back don't miss any don't skip any eras don't skip any generations work your way all the way back to the apostles so that you can tell one story and see what happens when you do yeah 
Amen. Well, Chris, thank you so much for uh, for joining us, guys. Uh, thank you guys for tuning in. Uh, if you haven't already, go ahead and hit that like button, hit that subscribe button, and check out remnantconferences.com. That's going to be booking out real fast. We're going to talk about prophecy and hearing God, and then tune in on Wednesday. Josh will still be on vacation, but Miller and I uh, will be talking about how to grow in the gift of healing. So we've got a lot of stuff going on, and so uh, so you guys just check it out and check out the links in, the, in our description. Thanks again so much for joining us. Uh, thank you, Chris, and uh, for the rest of you, God bless you all, and have a great week. I want to thank Kairos Classrooms for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio, and if you're out there, you've ever wondered, hey, I wonder if learning a biblical language would be a supplemental tool for me to help me in my biblical studies. Well, you need to check out Kairos Classrooms. They offer Greek and Hebrew classes that can help teach you and train you. It's a live classroom environment with actual students and actual live teachers, and they help teach you the biblical languages of Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. There's a link in the description, and you can use the promo code REMNANT to get 10% off These classes are already crazy affordable, but with the promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, you'll get 10% off of Kairos Classroom, so check that out today. And thank you so much for Kairos for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio.